of Mice and Zen, July 30th, 2021. Two mornings ago, if you tuned into my life, you would possibly not have recognized me. You would have found me striding in wide circles on a high, grassy plateau ringed with ancient, gnarled trees. The ground was scattered with wildflowers, and the view through a break in the trees revealed a valley patchworked with tilled and golden fields. An ancient, lichen-covered stone cross stood solidly on the crest of a nearby hill. It looked down, I must admit, upon a strange scene. Six of us were gathered in the clearing. I was naked, my clothes piled haphazardly on a tussock, and I strode angrily in wide circles, the grass lashing my calves. The wind whipped around me, but I wasn't cold. I was boiling, absolutely boiling with rage. I circumnavigated a man, also naked, 30 years my senior. His wife and three other women stood fully clothed at anchor points around us. I was yelling, screaming at this man, my throat becoming raw with the vibrations moving through it. A stream of invective frothed from my mouth like acid. My words were a lacerating whip that I applied terribly, lucidly, and with precision onto every point of weakness I could feel within the trembling man in front of me. For the previous two weeks, this same man had been following me as he later admitted, like you had honey on your ass. He had been living at a different part of the abbey while I was also staying there, in my small, high garret room. He was part of a group who knew Marie. The abbey is large, with extensive grounds, but somehow we kept running into each other. I was, for some reason I couldn't understand, uncomfortable in his presence. Each time I saw him heading toward me, I would slip quietly away. I had tried to be subtle about it, not wanting to cause conflict in Marie's group of friends. After all, he had never actually said or done anything overtly offensive. It was just a feeling I had. I could be wrong. Perhaps he was just trying to be friendly. Perhaps it was all a coincidence. Perhaps I was overreacting. I told myself all of this, but deep down, I could not believe it. I was concerned about creating drama among Marie's friends, especially ones who I had just met, so I mostly just tried to be invisible when he was around. I tried many passive things to avoid him, like hiding when I saw him coming. Sometimes he would visit our cabin unannounced. Once, when I came down and saw him standing in the kitchen, I began on instinct to talk ceaselessly, keeping up a bright stream of inane chatter as I walked him toward the front door. So engrossed was he, that he didn't realize where we were going. As soon as I led him over the threshold, I abruptly closed the door in his face before he understood what was happening. I could feel him oozing at me, but I had absolutely nothing concrete to confront him with. His overtures were subtle and energetic instead of physical, which made the invasion much more difficult to combat, especially as we were being thrown together for group activities over and over again that week, that morning. My heart sank as we all got out of our cars, and I saw he was one of the people joining us on the hike. We hiked for some time, but I couldn't really appreciate the surroundings. I spent my time swallowing my disgust and either falling back or foraging on ahead to avoid him and his subtle, impossible-to-prove oozing. Finally, 
On that grassy plateau, I reached my breaking point. I had had enough. As I look back, I believe that this was a culminating moment of lifetimes of enough. He was, after all, not the first man to ooze at me and then exclaim innocently when confronted. The phrases ran together in my head. I didn't do anything. Get a grip. You must be imagining things. What makes you think I would want you? Get over yourself. You're crazy. Name one thing I did to you. And on and on and on. So it was on that morning that I unleashed years and years of pent-up rage on this man who stood in front of me trembling like a sacrificial offering. I was absolutely out of my mind with fury. I was a striding, screaming, frenzied, blazing dakini of towering rage. And at the same time, shockingly, I was completely in command of myself. I was lucid and aware. I understood somehow that we were playing out a drama that needed to be played, demonstrating an eruption that needed to be acted out, witnessed and put finally to rest. This was a ceremony of sorts, one that sprung up organically between the six of us. So much for our pleasant morning walk. This ceremony was both personal and transpersonal. I was, on one hand, simply me, simply Kate, who had found herself so often hurt by the hands of weak men. On the other hand, I was a collective channel expressing the reviled, feared, and long-suppressed wrathful feminine. In front of me was another channel, representative of a generation of panicking men who are inexorably losing their comfortable position of dominance in the world. Simultaneously, there stood in front of me an actual human man, someone I knew and called friend, but who had also committed acts of violation. So we played on these many levels. As I strode naked through that clearing, a lifetime of violation and cruelty of being used and discarded by men in positions of trust, of excuses and gaslighting and declarations of love that withered at the first sign of unpleasantness, of broken promises and heartbreak and manipulation, of subtle invasions and condescension, of being pursued into places that were supposed to be sanctuaries, all of it rose up within me. Seething with revulsion, screaming under a lowering sky, hair wild and tangled by a presaging wind that piled thunderclouds on the horizon, I applied the whip of my words again and again, saying all of the things that I have always wanted to say to every weak, manipulative, cruel, brutal, lying, and stupid man who had bulled blithely through the delicate field of my body, mind, and emotions. In that moment, I was pitiless. I was relentless. I was a force of nature. Do you want to fuck me? I screamed. Well, here I am. Come and get it. He sank to his knees and whimpered. At various points, the other women around the circle would chime in, flaying him with their words, laying onto him all the sins of man that they had personally experienced.
Do you want to fuck me? I screamed. Well, here I am. Come and get it. He sank to his knees and whimpered. At various points, the other women around the circle would chime in, flaying him with their words, laying onto him all the sins of man that they had personally experienced. After a long time, I was spent. I realized suddenly that I was cold and my throat was raw. I had said all I wanted, and a part of me was finally at peace. I wrapped myself in a blanket, pointed him toward his wife, and told him to start explaining. The thing is, I could feel throughout the whole performance that he was residing entirely in his mind, analyzing, rationalizing, strategizing. He was trying to think of the right thing to say to make it all stop. There wasn't one cell in him that was actually feeling anything. There wasn't one part of him that was dwelling in stillness, actually listening to the embodied pain that all of us were in our own ways expressing. It was clear to me that this man was numb. He couldn't feel anything. It enraged me that he was such a blank brick wall. I attacked everywhere I could find, trying to get through the thought forms that lay thickly around him like an impenetrable armor. I thought of Kali Ma and her belt of severed male heads, and I finally understood her completely. When he faced his wife, she stared at him woodenly. Cravenly, he said the things he thought she wanted to hear, the things that he thought would let him off the hook and that, I'm certain, had let him off the hook in the past. He screamed and prostrated himself. When he faced his wife, she stared at him woodenly, cravenly. He said the things he thought she wanted to hear, the things that he thought would let him off the hook and that, I'm certain, had let him off the hook in the past. He screamed and prostrated himself. He said, I'm sorry. He cried. Throughout these histrionics, the rest of us stood unmoved. Finally, one of the women said, why don't you ask her what she needs? I need you to be quiet, his wife said. I need you to listen. He immediately babbled about how he was listening and how sorry he was. Why, I cut in contemptuously, the fuck are you still talking? The other women laughed. I don't know, he responded. Shut up, we screamed in unison. This unpromising trajectory did finally resolve itself. The man shared the next day that he had felt completely trapped by me. He used the analogy of a fisk. This unpromising trajectory did finally resolve itself. The man shared the next day that he had felt completely trapped by me. He used the analogy of a fish catcher where fish swim into an ever-narrowing cage and are blocked from retreating. Finally, cornered at the apex of this cage, he broke. I don't know, he finally wailed. I don't know what you want from me. At that point, every woman in the group relaxed. 
The tempest instantly abated. We breathed a sigh of relief. I don't know. We can work with that. Reader, I know that striding around naked, screaming like a banshee, does not sound very nice. It does not sound loving. It doesn't sound, dare I say, spiritual. But then, what exactly does it mean to be spiritual anyway? I have seen so many communities say they're designed for healing, but then set themselves up to avoid and suppress emotions like rage, bitterness, shame, grief, fear, and guilt, as though these experiences, so patently human, are something that are not and should not be part of our lives. Up on the plateau, that entire interaction was sacred. All of it. His weakness, his resistance, his numbness, his final breaking point, my rage, our collective scorn, and eventual softening at, I want to note, and not before his breaking point, that in itself is a very important lesson. Softening before is not true softening, but compromise. We were simultaneously caught in the drama and holding it lightly, at once participant and witness. Because we could inhabit each of our roles seamlessly, both the personal and the transpersonal, the whole tableau became a dance of humanity, a ceremony of authentic expression. I considered all of this as I sat in a Zen meditation today, an hour of stillness and silence at the nearby dojo. After years of practicing meditation, this was overall a blissful experience. However, there were moments of impatience, of mind-wandering, of fantasizing, of anxiety. I realized suddenly that there is no magic button that will make these things go away. I saw that true Zen masters, far from feeling nothing, actually feel everything. They simply allow the energy of their feelings to quake them from the inside. They become big enough to hold the continual arising of their totality, thus to master. Thus, to the master, the raw material of our emotions provides inexhaustible energy. The extent to which we deny any of our lived experiences, the extent to which we numb ourselves and shame our bodies, emotions, experiences, and our needs, is the extent to which we are dead. Of that I am convinced. Therefore, the resurrection of humanity, and especially, I believe, of men, begins with allowing ourselves to finally feel again, like the painful tingling that occurs when a frostbitten Therefore, the resurrection of humanity, and especially, I believe, of men, begins with allowing ourselves to finally feel again. Like the painful tingling that occurs when frostbitten extremities thaw enough to let the blood back in, this opening to long-suppressed emotions can be overwhelming at first. I am learning that it takes a generous field of compassion, both within us and around us, 
to allow the fullness of it all to sweep through us and finally out. When we let ourselves be opened by the poignancy of each moment, of each breath, we finally begin to live fully. It's funny, I meant to sit down and write about men. I wanted to give you a dispassionate essay on masculinity and the sacred healing of the sexes. Instead, I let you into this bizarre ceremony that erupted on a hill, overseen by four other women and an ancient lichen-covered cross. Because the fact is, reader, I'm still angry. I'm still feeling the aftershocks of that ceremony. I feel like a cat when it doesn't want to be touched, all elbows and bony spine, all claws and sharpness and hissing and slitted eyes. This morning, after that blissful Zen meditation, I listened to the presiding monk give a Dharma talk. It was in French, so I just let the cadence of his voice and the music of the language wash over me. It was later, however, over coffee, that I realized the real meditation had begun. As I was settling in to talk to one of my new friends, this monk, 30 years my senior, are you noticing a trend, sat down heavily in the chair next to me, turned toward me, and without preamble began talking. Sitting expansively in his seat, he kept up an incessant and unremitting drone, pausing neither for breath, sips of coffee, nor a response from me. He outlined in great detail his history with meditation, including his Buddhist credentials. It was clear that he was very eager to explain to me, the young, naive neophyte that I was, all of the tenets of enlightenment. And so he held forth, and I sat for almost an hour squirming in the fusillade of his words. Bored, my mind wandered. There was a piece of croissant stuck to his chin. It wobbled as he talked, and I watched, fascinated, wondering when it would fall. I thought he had some... I thought he had some sort of pomade in his hair. He was clearly very vain about his hair, which was very thick and gray and too long. He swept it off to the side and styled it very carefully. He had, certainly, a lot of theories on enlightenment. His brain knew a lot of impressive facts about enlightenment. He was fully capable of repeating the cliches we've all seen on inspirational posters. But. As I sat in his barrage of words, staring miserably at the dregs of my coffee, it was clear to me that this man, just like the other one the other day, was numb. He couldn't feel anything. He had no idea where his body was in space. He couldn't feel me. He couldn't feel my heart. He wasn't interested in reaching outside of himself to connect with me, human to human, light to light, spirit to spirit. He had shut himself up in the bleak monastery of his life and was absolutely clueless about the true meaning of intimacy, of life. Yet, this man talked as though every word he condescended to drop on my young, unformed, and impressionable mind was a precious jewel of immeasurable significance and poignancy. He never once asked me about myself. It never once occurred to him that I had far beyond what he could ever imagine experienced enlightenment. That I had dedicated my life to a mad, unhesitating, unconditional surrender to this force we call God. 
this point in my life, men, especially older men, kindly and unnecessarily explaining basic things to me is my most reliable trigger. Needless to say, I was bored. I was fidgety. I was restless. I was enraged. I noticed that he kept touching his hair. His teeth were stained. I thought about the irony of a Zen monk touting his identity and prestige as a Buddhist leader of a dojo. I wondered spitefully if he had Buddhist diplomas hanging somewhere in his house. It was on the tip of my tongue. point in my life, men, especially older men, kindly and unnecessarily explaining basic things to me is my most reliable trigger. Needless to say, I was bored. I was fidgety. I was restless. I was enraged. I noticed that he kept touching his hair. His teeth were stained. I thought about the irony of a Zen monk touting his identity and prestige as a Buddhist leader of a dojo. I wondered spitefully if he had Buddhist diplomas hanging somewhere in his house. It was on the tip of my tongue to ask him earnestly about the process for obtaining Buddhist micro-credentials when at last, thank God, I found my sense of humor. Where's your Zen now, huh? My higher self smirked. If this man had truly wanted to teach enlightenment, I knew. He would have sat quietly holding his espresso. He would have savored each sip closing his eyes and letting its dark fragrance envelop his senses. He would look out over the green hills rising in the distance, letting the morning sun soak into his skin. He would have said nothing, and in that silence invited me to enter into the miracle, the beauty, the sanctity of that moment and all it held within it. I have heard that one of Buddha's most powerful lectures was a morning gathering where his I have heard that one of Buddha's most powerful lectures was a morning gathering where he simply sat in silence holding a flower. They saw Aina Kostiachi. I have heard that one of Buddha's most powerful lectures was a morning gathering where he simply sat in silence holding a flower. They say only one monk in the audience understood what he was conveying, and that monk went on to They say my squist. I've heard that one of Buddha's most powerful lectures was a morning gathering 
where he simply sat in silence, holding a flower. They say only one monk in the audience understood what he was conveying, and that monk went on to found Zen Buddhism. I wonder, though, if the Buddha was trying to convey anything that morning. I wonder if it was only those gathered who labeled what was happening as a lecture. I wonder if the Buddha was even aware that people were watching him. Or was he simply so absorbed in the beauty and perfection and delicacy of the flower that all else simply vanished? I know that in the same way, this silly, earnest man is nothing but a figment of my own creation. I know he is a walking, talking representative of some aspect of my inner state that I am still resisting. I know that everything we draw into our field on the outside somehow lives inside of us. So here he arrived in the flesh, a living, breathing lesson, an external representation of something within myself that I cannot accept. I also know that I failed the lesson he was offering me. On one hand, I betrayed myself. I failed this lesson because I allowed myself to sit meekly and politely when I desperately wished I could be anywhere else. And while it may seem small, I have learned that there is no such thing as a small betrayal. So now I contemplate the question that has been nagging me all day. What false god did I prioritize over my sovereignty? Why did I, after so many years of facing far greater fears than this, subject myself to that awful interaction? And the honest answer is that after all of that, even after my Dakini moment on the plateau, I let my long ingrained habit of deference to men and my fear of causing a scene to dominate my real needs. I was in a group of people I had just met, in a small town where I'm establishing new friends, listening to a man by... <clears throat> and the honest answer is that after all of that, even after my Dakini moment on the plateau, I let my long ingrained habit of deference to men and my fear of causing a scene to dominate my real needs. I was in a group of people I had just met in a town where I'm establishing new friends, listening to a man who, by his own account at least, is very influential in the community. And well, I wanted these people to like me. And I know that out And I know that outspoken young women who question their elders are seldom liked. So I sat in silence, pretending to listen. But what would the truly authentic response have been? Deep down, I know that it wouldn't have been rage or rejection or withering scorn. It wouldn't have been me explaining my own experiences of enlightenment. It wouldn't have been standing and screaming at him to shut up and then running like a fractious teenager back into my flat, though I really was sorely tempted. Ramdas says that the highest service we can render another person is to simply be a space where they can come out and play when they're ready. Ramdas says that to render this service, 
There must be nothing within us that is keeping them trapped and nothing within us that is urging them to come out. We simply are a space for consciousness to emerge if it wants to. In other words, the most authentic response to that man would have been to simply sit and sip my own coffee, letting its dark fragrance envelop my senses. It would have been to watch silently the gentle swell of the hills in the distance. It would have been to allow his words to wash over me, just as they had done in the dojo early that morning, when he spoke in rounded and mellifluous French. It would have been to let him and his words and the traffic. In other words, the most authentic response to that man would have been to simply sit and sip my own coffee, letting its dark fragrance envelop my senses. It would... Mm. In other words, the most authentic response to that man would have been to simply sit and sip my own coffee, letting its dark fragrance envelop my senses. It would have been to watch silently the gentle swell of the hills in the distance. It would have been to allow his words to wash over me just as they had done in the dojo early that morning when he spoke in rounded and mellifluous French. It would have been to let him and his words and the traffic and the coffee and the river and the sunlight and the murmuring patrons around me coalesce into one perfect moment. In short, to behold him as a flower and allow all else to fall away. So maybe, reader, maybe he succeeded. Maybe he did teach me enlightenment after all.